you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to chapter 28. Well, we're here. We're finally there. We're at the end of this grand book. 48th sermon in the book of Acts. We began just over a year ago in August of last year, and we began with Jesus. We began with the resurrected Christ before he ascended to the Father. And before he ascends, he looks out on his gathered disciples and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And over the last year, we have tracked with Dr. Luke as he has walked with us through the fulfillment and the out from there into the surrounding region of Judea and the neighboring region of Samaria with Philip and others. And then at about the midway point of this book, the gospel is sent out from Jerusalem into a Gentile world. And it lands in a place called Antioch. And that church at Antioch sends out this guy named Paul and his friend Barnabas. And then they send out Paul and his other friend Silas. And then Paul and a whole crew of missionaries as they take the gospel message on into Asia Minor, throughout Macedonia, and down into Greece. And when Paul returns finally from all of these missionary journeys, he goes back to Jerusalem and he's arrested. He gets arrested in the temple because of his witness about Jesus. And he is taken into custody there in the temple. And he's held in prison for nearly three years, ultimately appealing his case to Caesar, whereby he is shipped off to Rome to take his case to Caesar. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking that on that journey, he was tossed and turned by a storm. He was shipwrecked and he was snake bit. But he finally makes it to Rome. And we pick up the story of what happens as he gets to Rome in our passage this morning. Paul's considered together the fact that Jesus's command to the disciples isn't finished. His command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth is not yet complete. The gospel has not yet gone to the ends of the earth. There are dark corners of the world that have yet to hear the gospel, that have yet to hear about Jesus. Some of those dark corners are our neighbors in our neighborhoods. Some of those dark corners are literally at the ends of the earth. But because they exist, the mission continues, and it continues through you and I, through the church, those who call on Christ as king. And so let's consider this morning, as we listen to Dr. Luke tell of Paul's work here in Rome, in his final days there, and let's listen to that as we consider the fact that the Lord will continue and by his grace, finish the mission 
through the church. So let's read Acts 28, beginning in verse 17, and we'll continue through the end of the book. These are God's words to us. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying about your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering with your people this morning to worship you. And we turn to your word now, Father, and we ask that you'd speak to us from it, not just so that we would walk away with a better understanding of what it says and what it means, but that we would be changed by it for your glory. And so we ask that you would do a work in these next few moments, that your spirit would attend to the reading of your word and would grant us sanctification, those who know you. And those who don't know you, Father, that you would grant repentance and faith to be justified in your sight. May the gospel take root in the hearts of every life in this room. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the narrative of this text can be divided into four sections as we kind of walk through the story together. In verses 17 through 20, uh, Paul is there in Rome and he, uh, he calls the Jewish leaders to himself and he begins to address them. And he kind of walks through a summary of what's happened over the last three years as he was arrested in Jerusalem and tried in Caesarea and so forth. But we're given a hint as to his purpose in this gathering in verse 20 when he says, it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. And we'll get more to that in just a moment. But his 
have been looked to. They, re they respond to him. The Jewish leaders respond to him. They say, essentially, we've heard nothing about you. We don't, we don't know anything about the evil that they say you have committed, but we do want to hear from you because everywhere we go, this sect, they called Christianity a sect of Judaism, this sect is spoken evil about everywhere we go. And so we want to hear directly from you. So it's a God-ordained appointment here. And so the appointment happens in verses 23 through 28, which is really the meat of our passage here, where he meets with the Jewish leaders and he preaches the gospel. He preaches Christ from the Hebrew scriptures. And we're told that he preaches to them from morning until evening. Now, I know that I can get a little long-winded from time to time. And I've begged forgiveness from the child care workers downstairs. But I've got nothing on the Apostle Paul. From morning until evening, he's expounding text. And he's preaching Christ from the law of Moses and the prophets. As a result of this, we're told that some were convinced and some were not. Some believed and some disbelieved. And then disagreeing among themselves, Luke tells us that they departed from Paul after he said something very controversial. And the controversial statement is given in verses 26 through 28, where he quotes from Isaiah 6. We remember the, the, the vision that Isaiah was given in Isaiah chapter 6, this grand vision of the throne room of God, to which Isaiah responds, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he says, who will go for me? Who will I send? And Isaiah says, send me. I will go for you. I will be your prophet. I will be your messenger. And what does God say to him? God says, okay, here's the task. You're going to go to a people who won't listen. You're going to go to a people whose ears have become dull and eyes are closed and shut. And Paul says, Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, and he says, when Isaiah said that, he rightly said that to your father's He's talking about you guys. And so the Jews were understandably offended by that. And then, he, and then he caps that off and he says, this message of salvation from our God is now going to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And they will listen. And so they disperse. Verse 29. And that's because verse 29 is only found in some of the more recent dated, the more recent and therefore less reliable manuscripts of the book of Acts. The more reliable and older manuscripts of the book of Acts do not include verse 29. But verse 29 essentially just summarizes verse 25, that they left and they departed after this, disputing among themselves. And then the final section is verses 30 and 31, where Luke gives a summary of the remaining time, Paul's remaining time in Rome. He's under house arrest. He stays there for two years. And by the way, we're told that he had to pay for his own uh, uh, incarceration. Isn't that a switch today where we pay like $50,000 in tax money for somebody who's incarcerated, but he has to pay for his own incarceration. He stays there for two years, in which time he welcomes visitors from all over the place. And he proclaims the gospel, we're told, with all boldness and without hindrance. We're not told in this passage, but we know from elsewhere that during those two years, as we mentioned last week, he also writes the prison epistles, the letter to Ephesus, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Colossians, and the personal letter to Philemon. 
after his imprisonment, by the way, and we can infer this from, from some of his other writings that he wrote after his Roman imprisonment, uh, particularly his letter to his two letters to Timothy and his letter to Titus that were written after this time. We know that he was released from prison this first time uh, to do further work in ministry. He went back out into the mission field. Specifically, he went to Macedonia and into East Asia, not the Asia that we know, but Asia Minor. And because we're told about that in his, um, in his pastoral letters, um, scholars, many scholars believe that he also went to Spain. Uh, we don't know that for sure. The, his letter to the Romans stated that he wanted to go to Spain. He intended to go to Spain, but we don't know for sure that we, he ever went there. But regardless, about five years after he's released, he's imprisoned again. He's taken back to Rome and he's taken back to prison. And this time he doesn't leave. He ends up being martyred, beheaded under Emperor Nero for his faith. And so in these closing us fellow Jews in the gospel and recounts for us his final two years under house arrest. And as we consider together this morning that the mission is not yet complete and that it continues through you and I, through the body of Christ today, we're reminded from this text that God is taking the gospel to the nations. That the mission of Acts and the story of Acts is not finished. That it is continuing today through the New Testament church. And if we as the New Testament church are to be obedient to the task, as Paul was, there are at least four key aspects of the gospel that we see in this passage and really all throughout the book of Acts, that we must hold firmly to if we are to continue and, Lord willing, finish the mission that Jesus gave to the church. And so from this text, I want to talk this morning about four things. First, I want to talk about the grounding of the gospel. Secondly, the delivery of the gospel. Third, I want to talk about the response to the gospel. And then lastly, the offense of the gospel. So that'll kind of guard our time and, and uh, mark our time this morning. First, the grounding of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an historical account that is recorded for us in the biblical record. It is a biblical account of something that happened. And so, as a consequence that our handed the baton to continue the mission, we need to make sure that our gospel proclamation is likewise grounded in the scriptures. Paul says in verse 20, we mentioned it earlier, it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain, he says. And can't you just see Paul at this point? He said, I'm meeting with you guys because it is the hope of Israel it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain today, guys, as he's chained to that guard. This is the fourth time that Paul has referred to the hope of Israel being the reason for his arrest and the reason for his imprisonment. He first referred to this hope back in Jerusalem when he was standing trial before the Sanhedrin. And then in the very next chapter, he referred to the hope of Israel again when he's giving his defense before Felix in Caesarea. In chapter 26, 
he said to King Agrippa, still in Caesarea, Paul said this, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day, even now. And he says, And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. And here now in chapter 28, for the fourth time, he says in verse 20, it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. It was the hope that God would send Messiah, that God would send the anointed one, that God would send a king, one from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And would redeem God's covenant people from sin. Through a new covenant relationship with them. Whereby their sins would be forgiven. And, would, and they would have God's spirit within them. It was the hope of life after deserved death. It was a resurrection hope. It, it was the hope of life everlasting. God with his people. And where was this hope articulated for the Jews? How was it the hope of Israel? Where was it found? It was found in the Hebrew Scriptures. Which is why in verse 23, Luke tells us that Paul, from morning till evening, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. From where? He tells us both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. The word expounded comes from a Greek word that means to lay something out before someone. And it's closely related to our English word exposition, which is what we do when we're trying to preach God's word. We're trying to lay out the the ourselves. This is what Paul was doing with the Hebrew Scriptures, from morning until evening, he expounded to them, taking what was in the biblical text and and laying it out before them in such a way that, that, that that it testified to the kingdom of God in an attempt to convince them of who Jesus was, that the text of the law of Moses and the text of the prophets and everything in between was pointing to Jesus That he is the hope of Israel. This is what he was doing. Paul worked hard to ground his proclamation of the gospel in the scriptures. Jesus did the same. You recall the story of the two disciples who after Jesus was put to death and they found the tomb empty. They began wandering away from Jerusalem toward Emmaus. And on that road, Jesus shows up to him. And he opens the scriptures to them. And he shows them in all the scriptures that they point to him. Luke writes in Luke 24, verse 27, of this occasion. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The gospel is grounded in the solid bedrock of the word of God. 
Paul emphasizes this truth that we look at often in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, Now I would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, here it is, here's the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures might Paul be referring to there? It's the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. And, and, and so we know unequivocally that we find the gospel in the New Testament, but it's in the Old Testament as well. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of Israel, is grounded in the word of God. Now, why is that important for us who've been handed the baton to continue the mission? Why is it important that we know and believe and hold firmly to the fact that the gospel is grounded in the scriptures? Well, particularly in a pluralistic culture like the one in which we live, religious truths are constantly at risk of being compromised by the ever-changing whims of culture. And the whims of culture are ever-changing because they are not grounded in any way to any timeless truth. Instead, truth is up to the individual, and individuals differ in well. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is grounded in an ancient document that we hold to be the unvarnished and unequivocal word of God. And as such, the gospel is not susceptible to the whims of our culture. It doesn't change. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't progress. Now, the, we'll be tempted, the church will be tempted to, to allow cultural influences to marginalize biblical truth. And we know that we see examples of this all over the place in Christian leaders, churches, and even entire denominations as they bow to the progressively secular worldview of our day. But as long as we ground the gospel in the scriptures, the gospel will never be up for debate, neither in here or among the pagans. Rather, it is an historical account of God coming to earth, putting on flesh and becoming one of us, living a perfect life, achieving a righteousness that we never could, being put to death on a cross in the place of sinners so that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ might be rescued. Neither we and neither those who are within these walls or the unconverted masses outside of the wall, these walls can invent their own gospel. They can reject the gospel. They can dip the option to change the gospel and come up with their own. Why? Because it is grounded in the scriptures. That's why, church, it is so important for us to be explicit in the biblical groundings of our proclamation of gospel truths we need to be explicit in their biblical groundings in our witness for jesus as we take that baton and finish the race 
or at least continue the race. Let us not give vague gospel platitudes that are not grounded in the Word of God. Things like God wants to help us become the best version of ourselves, or follow God and He will bless you somehow, or, or something like that. But rather, church, let us offer timeless, timeless truths, gospel truths that are grounded in Scripture. God is holy. Man is unholy and sinful. Because of our sin, we are destined and deserved of eternal and just punishment and, and judgment. But God made a way for sinful man to be reconciled back to him. And that way was by sending his son, Jesus. Jesus is God's only and begotten son. He became man for us. He lived a perfect life, achieving a righteousness we couldn't. He went to the cross, paying the debt that we owed, defeated sin. These are biblical truths. But these are truths that we can never just assume. We can't assume those truths. We can never assume that everyone knows these things and believes these things, either in here or certainly not out there. D.A. Carson says that to assume the gospel in one generation is to lose it in the next. So we, may we never be ones to assume this, but rather to be explicit in our gospel proclamation and explicit in our grounding of the gospel in the scriptures. So as we consider the fact that Paul is, in essence, handed the baton to us so that we'll finish the mission and continue the race, we need to be resolved to keep our proclamation of gospel truths grounded in the scriptures. Grounded in the scriptures. Secondly, the delivery of the gospel. God's chosen delivery mechanism for the gospel is his people. And we've seen that not only here through the Apostle Paul, but we've seen that all throughout this book. Whether it was Peter at Pentecost or Stephen, as you recall, on the streets of Jerusalem, or Philip in Samaria, or Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others in Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece, and now in Rome, God's chosen delivery mechanism is his people. Paul and the other apostles delivered the good news because that was part of their identity. They were apostles. The word apostle, apostolos in the Greek, simply means messenger. It means one who is sent, a sent one. Now, it became a formal office in the first century church, and it was reserved only for those who had, who had seen the resurrected Christ with their own eyes, and it did not extend beyond the first century church. But if we simply take the Greek word by itself, we see that all those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ ought to have something of an apostolic identity. The, the word apostolos is derived, that's a, that's a noun, and it's derived. And we find that that is the very same verb, the very same word that Jesus uses in his high priestly prayer in John 17 before he's arrested and tried and crucified, 
He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for you and I, praying for his disciples. And he says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so this is our identity, church. We, we have been sent. We have been apostelloed. It's part of our identity. We're messengers. And as messengers, we fulfill Jesus' command to be his witnesses by faithfully delivering the message that's been entrusted to us. See, church, we, the body of Christ, those who claim Christ as their king, God has chosen us to be his plan A for delivering the gospel to the nations, and there is no plan B. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder, why? Why did God choose us to be his delivery mechanism? Why did God choose weak, frail, imperfect, broken vessels to be his delivery mechanism for the glorious gospel? It's a question that I want to ask when I get to heaven. Why us? There could be Many other ways that we could think of that would be more grand, right? How about a giant supernova that explodes in the night sky, leaving a a, a trail of stardust that scripts out the good news of Jesus Christ? Why us? Well, perhaps we're given an answer in Paul's writings to the Corinthian church. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, God didn't choose us to be his messengers because we're all that impressive. He didn't choose us because we're wise and strong and influential. In fact, he chose us in spite of the fact that we're not wise, we're not strong, we're not overly influential and popular and he did this so that the gospel might be seen as the thing that shames the wise that the gospel might be that which weakens the strong of the world and brings to nothing that which the world considers consequentialism that no earthly strength that is stronger than the power of the gospel as paul will write it is the power of god unto salvation And there is no other news that is as consequential as the gospel. And then Paul follows this up in the very next verses in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians by saying this. In, In essence, I too am not impressive. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Here's the purpose statement. 
so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. God chose weak, frail, imperfect people like you and I, and apparently like the Apostle Paul, so that those whom he calls to faith through our proclamation of the gospel, that their faith might not rest on the impressiveness of man, but on the impressiveness of God. That's why he uses us to proclaim the glorious truth of the gospel. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul is writing in chapter 4 about the light of the gospel. And then he says this in verse 7 of chapter 4. But we have this treasure, the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jars of clay, broken vessels, imperfect delivery mechanisms. And God chooses us to deliver the treasure of the gospel. Why? To show that the surpassing power, the power to save, belongs to God and not to us. We are God's chosen delivery mechanism for the treasure of the gospel. But the question is, are we faithfully delivering that treasure? Are we? Are you? Our oldest son manages a fleet of Amazon Prime trucks, delivery trucks, and every day he sends out a team of drivers with their trucks loaded with packages to be delivered all over the place. Those delivery truck drivers have one job, to take the package entrusted to them and to deliver it to the person or business to whom it is addressed. And he's shared with us that on, incredibly, on multiple occasions, He's had drivers simply quit on the job right in the middle of their route. They decide that they no longer want to be delivery drivers. They no longer want to be employed as a delivery person. And instead of turning in a two-week notice like a normal person, they simply pull their truck over to the side of the road, they park it, and they abandon it with all the packages yet to be delivered inside. Have we become like those drivers? Have we simply pulled over to the side of the road and decided that we no longer want to be messengers? And we no longer want to be missionaries? We no longer wish to be the delivery mechanism for the treasure of the gospel. And we've parked our truck and we've abandoned the mission. You know, I wonder, I wonder if we are to be faithful to this mission, if that road to faithfulness goes by the way of repentance of that, to confess, to confess a degree, perhaps abandoned the mission. What does John remind us of in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe we need to do some business with God and confess that. To the degree that we've abandoned our mission, let us do that. Confess and repent. 
and then receive that forgiveness and be cleansed of the unrighteousness of abandoning the mission. And then let us walk back to the truck, put our key in the ignition, start it up, and get back to the route, delivering this treasure of the gospel that we've been entrusted with. We are God's chosen delivery mechanism. So first, the grounding of the gospel. It's grounded in the word of God. Secondly, the delivery of the gospel is through broken vessels like us. Thirdly, the response to the gospel. We read in our passage here in verse 24 that, that some were convinced when Paul presented the gospel to them. They were, present, they were convinced of the truth of the gospel, but others disbelieved. Some believed, some disbelieved. Which is a reminder to us that God is sovereign in salvation. We've seen this and we've noted this as we've walked all throughout this book. At Pentecost, 3,000 souls were, at, were added to their number. 3,000. Why not 2,000? Why not 4,000? 10,000? Why 3,000? Well, because of what Peter said in his sermon at Pentecost. In chapter 2, verse 39, the promise of salvation is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And apparently on that day, the Lord called to himself 3,000 souls. There was a particularity to that redemption story. Also in chapter 2, as Luke is describing the new covenant community, he says in verse 47 of that chapter that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, there was, a, there was a particularity to the Lord adding to their number. He multiplied it in verse 39. He added in verse 47. And so God, including there, gives a, kind of a summary of their ministry in verse 48 of that chapter. And he says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so what was the difference between those who believed and those who did not believe? Apparently the difference was appointment to eternal life. Those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were not appointed didn't. God is sovereign in salvation. In chapter 16, remember the story of the conversion of Lydia of Thyatira, the very first European convert on European soil. How did Lydia come to faith in Jesus? We're told in verse 14 of that chapter that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. God is sovereign in salvation. And so here again in our passage this morning, we learn that Paul shared the gospel with the Jewish leaders in Rome and some were convinced and some disbelieved. And what was the difference between those two groups? Was one group more gullible than the other? Was, was, was one group harder to convince than the other? Was one group more sinful than the other? Or one group more or less religious than the other group? No. What about Paul? Was, was the difference Paul? Was he more convincing with one group than the other? Was he better at answering the questions of one group than the other? No. People was, and one was not. One group was granted faith and repentance by grace, and the other was not. 
Now, church, we can debate about where God's sovereignty ends and where man's responsibility begins all day long, all week long, all year long, till the rest of our days. Scholars have been debating that for centuries. Both are necessary, and neither can be set aside. If you tell me that God is sovereign over salvation, so much so that man is not responsible to repent and believe, I'm going to call you a hyper-Calvinist and tell you to go read your Bible. If, on the other hand, you tell me that man bears all the responsibility such that God is held hostage by man's free will, I'm going to call you a hyper-Arminian and tell you to go read your Bible. Both are necessary. God is sovereign over salvation and man is responsible to repent and believe. Those are the two things that we must hold and resolve to hold and leave the nuances to the scholars in an ivory tower. But since God is sovereign and salvation, then the good news is it's not up to us to convince someone to believe the gospel. Now, we should try to convince them, as Paul does here in verse 23. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is the hope of Israel. And we should hope that some of them are convinced, as some do in verse 24. But ultimately, it is not our job to convince. It's not our job to make someone believe or to make someone repent. Friends, that's God's job. And believe me, it is the harder part of the job. Because our job, our job is to get into that truck, turn the ignition on, and deliver the gospel. We are the delivery person, delivering the treasure of the gospel in these jars of clay. And that should be both encouraging and a relief to us, to know that that their salvation is not riding on us, but it's riding on God. And so as we deliver the good news, And call people to repentance and faith. Those whom God has called to himself and appointed to eternal life will eventually, at some point, they will repent and believe. And those who are not, will not. As here, some will believe and others will disbelieve. And the difference between them is on the list of things that are God's responsibility, not ours. And so let us be faithful to deliver the treasure of the gospel and call people to repent and believe and leave the rest up to God. Finally, the fourth key aspect of the gospel that we learn from Paul here that can be applied to our segment of running the race with the baton that's been passed to us is the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel. The Jews were offended that Paul used Isaiah's words against them, Jewish message to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That was offensive to these Jewish leaders. And it should be a reminder to us that the gospel itself is offensive. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says in verses 18 through 25, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But here, let's look at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the, the news of the Messiah hanging on a tree, nailed to a wooden cross, is a stumbling block to Jews, and it is folly to Gentiles. That word stumbling block in the Greek is the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get our English word scandal, scandal. It literally refers to the, to the trigger of a trap. It, it, it's, a, it's a stick that when you, when you trip over it, you fall in. But use a scandal on, a trap, a, a stick that only served to trip them up. But to those who are called, he says, it is the power of God to save. It's a treasure to those who are called and appointed. It's a scandal on to those who are not called and not appointed. But here's here's the key. Don't miss this. If we remove the offense of the gospel, then it's neither. If we remove the offense of the gospel, then the gospel is neither a scandal on, nor is it the power of God to save. Nor is it a treasure. The gospel offends. And it must offend. It offends our sense of self-righteousness, self-esteem, our our sense of self-autonomy that we don't need anything or anyone outside of ourselves, much less God. It it offends our sense of self-achievement that we can be good enough through our own self-effort. And if the gospel, here's here's the thing, if the gospel that we proclaim doesn't offend those things, then we're proclaiming a false gospel. Those things must be offended if the gospel is going to be the good news to save. And so church, let us be careful. In an attempt to make the gospel more palatable, may we never remove the offense of the gospel. Now, gospel and hindrances to the advancement of the gospel. We've seen this for the last couple of months, walking through chapters 21 through 27 of the book of Acts, because it's one hindrance after another, right? He gets to Jerusalem and he's arrested. He he has to stand trial before the Sanhedrin, and they nearly beat him to death. He's shipped off to Caesarea. He has to stand trial not before one governor, but two, and then before King Agrippa. And he's incarcerated there without just cause for two years. He gets shipped off to Rome, and and during that journey, he sees the hindrances of a storm, a shipwreck, and a snake. Paul knew hindrances to the gospel. But here, by God's grace, At the very end of the book of Acts, we read in verse 31 that Paul preaches the gospel boldly and without hindrance. That sounds nice, doesn't it? We like gospel proclamation without hindrance. 
That sounds nice to us. We might, we might register for that on the church app. Proclamation of the gospel without any hindrance. But where was Paul when his gospel proclamation was without hindrance? He was under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. No hindrances except for prison and being chained to a soldier. You know, all things being considered, we would probably prefer not to have gospel proclamation avoid their defense of the gospel in hopes that we would avoid the hindrances to its advancement. I hope and pray that the last couple of months as we've walked through looking at Paul's hindrances to gospel advancement, God has done a work on our hearts to drive home the truth that if hindrances to the advancement of the gospel continue in our day and grow and become more significant and become violent, perhaps, in our day for us, that we, like Paul, would be reminded that God is still with us, that he'll not leave us or forsake us, and that every promise he's made to us will be fulfilled. Regardless of hindrance or the lack thereof, like Paul, we must proclaim the gospel, as he says here, with all boldness. I use Blue Letter Bible a lot in my study of the scriptures, and the Blue Letter Bible defines this Greek word for boldness here in the following way, that it is freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech, speaking openly frankly, and without concealment, without ambiguity, speaking free and with fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, and assurance. This is how we are to proclaim the gospel, church. In other words, this is how we are to deliver the treasure of the gospel, regardless of whether there are hindrances or not. Paul preached the gospel for two years under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard with all boldness. But he recognized that he needed God's help to do that. And so on multiple occasions, while he's in prison, he writes letters to churches and he asks them to pray that God would give him that boldness. He writes to the church at Ephesus and pray also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then as we read from Colossians 4 earlier, he writes to that church Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us who are in prison, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. All I've got to say is that if the Apostle Paul needed prayer for boldness, we do too. So let's close in prayer, asking that God would give a portion of the race with that baton 
to continue and, Lord willing, finish that mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have in your divine wisdom sovereignly selected us to be your delivery mechanism of this good news. We know that we're not worthy of that task. We know that we don't deserve that. And sometimes, if we're honest, we would rather not have that. But Father, we thank you so much for the stories that we've read, the historical accounts that we've read throughout the book of Acts that give us demonstration of the fact that when you call people to your mission, you equip them, you empower them, and you're with them. And so, Father, because that story continues now through us and that mission now continues through us, we know that we can count on those same things. You have empowered us with the very same Holy Spirit that came up upon your followers at Pentecost. We have the power in us to give us the strength and the courage and the wisdom to be faithful witnesses. You've equipped us with the good news. You have given us your word that lays it out for us plainly. And Father, we know that you'll be with us. Regardless of hindrances, you will be with us and you'll walk with us as we seek to be faithful. And so, Lord, in our proclamation of gospel truths with our friends, neighbors, and co-workers, Father, may we ground the gospel in the word of God so that the changing whims of the culture around us will never rob it of its grounding and its truth. Father, will you remind us that salvation is up to you, that our job is simply to get in the truck and deliver it, to be faithful deliverers of this treasure of the gospel, and that the response to the gospel is up to you. May we be faithful to do our part and entrust the rest to you. Father, I thank you so much for teaching us and beyond that, encouraging us from this passage to be a looking at Father, may you keep our hand to the plow. May you empower us and continue to be with us and strengthen us as we seek to be faithful deliverers of this glorious truth. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.